Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My na name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Amoda Ma Jivan. Welcome, Amoda. Hi, Rick. Pleasure Hi. to meet you. Yeah. It's been lovely getting to know you over the last couple of weeks, reading your books and listening to quite a few hours of past uh, interviews and talks that you have given. Um, I, I communicate with you by uh, message earlier today, but there was one of your talks in which I found it was kind of astounding in terms of its um, wisdom and its coherence. You went on for the better part of an hour just with this really deep unfoldment of, of knowledge and, and I was very impressed. I, I, I could barely carry on for two sentences like that. <laughs> so uh, I think people will enjoy this interview and will probably enjoy reading your books if they choose to do so. Um, one of them is entitled How to Find God in Everything, which I think is a, an intriguing title and another, Change Your Life, Change Your World. So we'll talk about what's in those books and and all. But um, let's start by talking about how you got to the point where you could have written such books. Um, you know, what your whole your whole life, uh, not your whole life, but the <laughs> whatever you consider significant in your life as relevant to your spiritual unfoldment. Well, it's always... Um you know, not knowing which doorway to come into because there's so many threads that have uh, brought me here so we could sort of start anywhere but um, I guess the most pertinent uh, doorway is that uh, my life uh, has been one of psychological suffering mental and emotional I had a challenging childhood um, which I, I won't go into the details but um, it left me very uh, introverted, very, um, uh, at periods of my time, mute. I was unable to speak. I, I experienced a lot of shocks, um, a Dif lot of isolation. Difficult family situation or something? Very difficult family situation. I was mm -hmm. born into circumstances that were kind of shrouded in shame and secrecy, hmm. not knowing who my real father was and not knowing this till later in my childhood. But the, the kind of... Um, inheritance was one of like there was some terrible secret and that I wasn't good enough and I was kind of the ugly duckling and this kind of feeling and then experiencing the shock of uh, finding out and um, also I was actually in a war um, I experienced wartime uh, in the Mediterranean um, uh, when I was in my teens in my I was 13 12 13 and that was a huge shock to uh, experience that reality wasn't uh, what it appears to be. Greece and Cyprus, uh, was it? Yes, mm. indeed. Um, so, and then, you know, not knowing which culture I came from, it was very confused and mixed, and many, many circumstances that were very sudden and, you know, unexpected. And all of this, uh, the reason I'm saying all this is, is that it, 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 it really sort of created a bedrock in my life of the question who am I not consciously but subconsciously always uh, wondering uh, what my identity was and um, sort of feeling without a kind of identity <laughs> like not having a definite root ancestral root um, and I think it's good to mention this stuff in at least in passing though because some people who go through a lot of people go through difficult childhoods and and but you know some end up with a oh poor me I'm damaged for life mentality and others see it as a springboard for you know spiritual 
um, inquiry. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, I didn't know this when I was a child mm. and growing up in my 20s. So there was a lot of confusion and a lot of lostness. Um, but yes, it, it, it sort of led to the, the more conscious question. And um, I, in my 20s, I was an academic. I got lost in my head. You read Carl uh, Jung when you were 14, I heard you say. Yes. That's impressive. Yes. Yeah, I was, I was very um, serious as a child. I told my mother once that I wanted to be a nun. Mm -hmm. And I must have been five or six years old, maybe seven, eight, I can't remember. And the reason I told her that, I got a good slapping, at least a verbal slapping, mm -hmm. was that I was really drawn to that inner silence, even mm -hmm. when I was a child. And um, I was very serious. And um, yeah, I, was in, I, I loved Carl Jung and Leonardo da Vinci and all the greats. And when I had my uh, interview at school as to what do you want to be when you grow up, um, <laughs> the, I, I said, I want to be like uh, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> oh, so you want to be an illustrator of science books? <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. Um, I want to be a master, you know. So there was a seriousness to me, but life came at me and, and, and kind of really shattered my reality so many times that um, I ended up getting very academic, very lost in my head, and um, I spent many years at university studying for a doctorate in psychology, searching for the meaning of life, but ending up um, uh, immersed in statistics and experiments that had nothing to do with real psychology, and I think that's the experience of many psychology students, as far as I know. But it, um, it kind of broke my spirit, and um, uh, this went on for many years until finally something crashed. I mean, I was suicidal during that time. I was depressed. Uh, I had several suicide attempts. Serious um, ones? Serious ones, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, my parents don't know this, so if they're going to watch this interview, this will be a surprise to them. <laughs> I've heard you say it in other interviews, so <laughs> the secret is um, out. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, Did you finish really the doctorate? Well, this is the interesting point for me, is that I came within three months. I, I spent seven years studying for the doctorate. It mm -hmm. should have taken three. It took me seven years because I was always pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable. Um, and... Uh, in terms of the topic I was studying. And uh, within three months of completion, I had a big uh, emotional, spiritual crash, call it what you will. Um, it was very sudden, it happened very quickly, and I, uh, I couldn't complete. And so there was a huge letting go in that, and again, a loss of identity, and it was probably the worst and the best thing that had happened to me at the time, because on the one hand, I spent many years in regret and grief about that, and the loss of what could be, and all the years that I invested in that, but actually, it, it, I, I, I completely lost my sense of, I saw that I had hung my sense of self on this achievement of a PhD and the approval of my father and the approval of authority and the only way that I knew how to feel that I had any inner authority or voice in the world um, and uh, when I lost that I kind of lost everything internally the ground of my being kind of shattered but I also lost everything externally 
I lost my home, I lost my money, I became penniless, I became quite destitute, um, I lost my uh, relationship, my long-term relationship, obviously I lost my career and my focus, and um, I became literally a nobody. I hadn't started the spiritual search, even though I was very uh, into depth psychology, I hadn't started anything spiritual, um, but I had this huge opening, this huge void that uh, allowed me to get a sense of something much deeper mm -hmm. and I had uh, many uh, uh, very sudden mystical experiences that came to me in that opening where I guess I kind of saw the nature of reality, I saw the holographic um, nature of existence and it was like everything that I had ever questioned and searched for through my academic studies came to me in an instance and it kind of blew my mind and it blew my heart and it um, and then I had to kind of go on this deep journey of self-discovery a lot of therapy a lot of uh, questioning I started meditation and everything happened very quickly after that a lot of inner growth but a lot of pain because everything that had been suppressed up until that point just came rushing forwards and I had to find tools and techniques to deal with that um, a lot of it to do was to do with abandonment um, and and gradually I grew internally um, and I ended up in India uh, as many seekers do and um, I ended up at Osho's ashram um, and Osho had just left his body by then, and but I had this uh, real sense of what love really is. I had never known till then what love was. <laughs> um, I was always looking for it in a relationship and then always feeling abandoned when that didn't meet my needs. And I really got it, and I got it very quickly. I, I wasn't looking for enlightenment, um, so even though I was a I guess a seeker I wasn't really uh, you know seeking enlightenment or awakening or anything as uh, dramatic as that I was really seeking happiness um, it was much more basic if you like I was seeking happiness I was seeking love um, perhaps you felt that enlightenment or awakening were too lofty uh, a goal you know and that and that you'd settle for just give me some happiness <laughs> yeah you know. absolutely I it was still self-centered if you like it was for me you know I want a peaceful life I want a happy life um, and so that's where I was at and uh, but that seed that fragrance that Osho's um, essence offered really uh, touched me very deeply and when I came back from India I something had been planted if, in me if you like and from that moment on uh, I, I did have some uh, insight, if you like, that um, you know the the real guru is within, or the real guru is life itself. So I guess my focus became a real surrender to life, a real opening to life in a way that I had never done before. And there was a very profound teaching that I had once. It was actually uh, through the ayahuasca medicine, mm -hmm. the first time I tried it. Um, uh, I guess that's when I got a bit more serious about my spiritual seeking then uh, rather than just trying out different experiences I, I, I did ask the question I can't remember what the question was but I wanted something um, 
important to me answer, something you know profound, um, something that had real meaning as to how I could really open to existence. And um, uh, I guess my question, I, actually, the question was, if I open to love, if I give love, in other words, what will I receive? You know, what's what's the risk? Um, so I was still concerned with what I would get back. And the teaching that I got, or the message I got, which was like a big Zen stick, was that there are, it, it came in a sentence, it was, there are no brownie points in heaven. <laughs> and it sounds so simple, but it really um, hit me to the core. And when I, when I felt that, it was like, wow, there's, there's no reward. It's, it's an unconditional giving of myself. And I realized how still I was holding myself back from the world, from from being love, from offering love, from knowing love, from you know, and uh, don't you feel that you you're kind of living in a very rewarded condition though these days? Um, that there there was in fact a reward. I mean, yes, but it's only in dropping the whole idea of reward that that yeah i mean mm. now i feel blessed now i feel my life is is filled with grace but that grace doesn't always come in in the way that i'd like it to be so the whole fantasy that i had which was one of perfection and everlasting peace and everlasting happiness and that i'm a good person and only good things come to me um because i think good thoughts and i feel good things and that's all gone so um that was the beginning of it was then this was many many years ago sure um and so that was the kind of opening for me um and it was after that i started um teaching myself um i i i used a form of active meditation that i uh developed myself but also drew from osho or was uh, supported in that where we we did a lot of shaking and it was crazy and it was wild and um uh, I used a lot of improvised live music and there was lots of screaming and shouting and it's very ecstatic and it was very liberating and a lot of my personal growth came from liberation through um, emotional catharsis mm. and uh, freeing the body of its armoring mm. um, and I was steeped in breath work as well and um, uh, all that primal therapy and um, I, I modified that and created my own technique and I was teaching for many years and it, it really brought me into the world in a way that I had been unable to before um, and interfacing with people um, in a way that again I had been very scared to do before so it was a great teaching for me and I reached a place in my life which was kind of stable well, nothing's ever been stable in my life but <laughs> it's uh, it, it was relatively stable and it had some direction and it was very rewarding um, on many levels and um, there was joy in a way that there hadn't been before and uh, and then I had a huge shock when my uh, long-term relationship which had been 10 years it was a marriage um, very dramatically suddenly ended um, I went through a lot of grief and I lived on my own and went through a whole sense of abandonment again but had a lot of support internally and externally through that and came to a place where I was very comfortable in living with myself and then it was like bang 
this uh, real dark night of the soul came and it was much more conscious and much more uh, all-enveloping than anything I had experienced before. It was reminiscent of some of my suicidal periods, except this time there was no uh, movement towards that at all because I was much more conscious and I was an experienced meditator, so there was no way that was going to happen, but it had the same flavor. And it, it grew over several months, uh, this inner darkness, uh, which took me totally by surprise because my external world was going real well. And... Um, I had no teacher, I had no guru, I hadn't been to India for uh, 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 several years, um, there wasn't anything I was clinging to particularly, um, and I just knew that this time I had to really face it once and for all, <clears throat> and my desire was for freedom above and beyond happiness, above and beyond love, above and beyond success above and beyond anything else that I've been clinging to before and it came from the depths of my soul and I, it was just like very quick I, 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 I sort of this voice came from within me that said I, I, it was like a prayer I guess a prayer for freedom for truth for whatever it took you know and I fell to the ground and it was a kind of surrender, a deep, deep surrender, a letting go of everything and a kind of death. I experienced it like a, a sort of, I guess, a psychological death. And in that moment, I received a vision, which totally took me by surprise. <laughs> that was the basis of my book because I was compelled to write, not necessarily about the vision, but what the, what the vision had kind of um, uh, sown you know, seeded in me, which was a, a, a something to be shared because it wasn't mine. It didn't belong to me. It was a collective vision. Uh, it had significance for humanity's evolution. And as I, um, you're going to tell us what the vision is, right? Well, it's kind of long, so I don't know. Long if you is okay. These interviews <laughs> go two hours sometimes, so you know, take your take your time, make it comprehensive. Well, it took me by surprise, Rick, because it. It was very uh, God-centered, and I had never been able to use that word or had any um, sort of theistic leanings, you know, religious leanings. Uh, it's not religious, but that's the symbology that came to me. Um, but, you know, it, 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 the vision was an experience that had me walking through the valley of death, had me walking through the valley of darkness, which was both uh, an internal landscape of darkness, the landscape of suffering, whatever that means in one's personal life. Um, it had its own, you know, flavor for, for me, but it had a collective flavor as well. It's the suffering of humanity, uh, both physical, emotional, um, you know, spiritual. And um, it was a very desolate landscape, and I found myself... Uh, dying within that. It was a kind of bardo state, I guess, uh, a hell realm, and both the inner hell realm and the outer hell realm that we've created, samsara, and, um, you know, the world of destruction and pollution and uh, violence and war. And I experienced this, and as I walked through it, 
I was giving in to this desolation, this despair, this destruction, and out of that darkness, as I surrendered to my death, I had a moment of gratitude, and that was the, the turning point. And that gratitude wasn't for the good things. It wasn't for, oh, wow, my life's so great, or, you know, wow, I'm so lucky, or I've got great friends, <laughs> or whatever. It was a gratitude for all the suffering. Hmm. It was an embracement of the darkness, because the darkness holds the light. Mm -hmm. And it was a tiny glimpse of gratitude, but it was like a flame in, in the center of my heart, uh, you know, a flicker of a flame. And that flicker of a flame was enough to create what felt like and what was seen and experienced as this golden thread that connected from my heart outwards and upwards. And I found myself rising into this light and walking up a set of golden uh, steps. Um, I guess it was like the staircase to heaven. <laughs> I experienced it, uh, myself as having gone through some kind of death so it felt like I was rising to heaven um, and here would be the everlasting peace that I had uh, fantasized about uh, when I was younger but it wasn't that and I had to see through the illusion of that and I was being called to be absolutely present without any agenda no agenda of everlasting peace or heaven or a future paradise or you know sweet sleep <laughs> um, but to be very very present as I went up these steps and as I was very present uh, I was present to all that um, I was present to all the the, the masks or all the defenses or all the subtle veneers that I was carrying um, as I faced uh, reality uh, you know, as it unfolded in each moment. And through that presence, through that absolute anchoring in that presence, those veneers, those uh, masks dissolved. And I found myself literally becoming like a, a child, innocent, and more naked, literally and metaphorically. And my eyes became clearer, and my sight became clearer, and my skin became more translucent and tender. And I walked up the steps, and I became more open. Finally, I reached the top of this staircase, and it's imbued with light and a, a, a deep presence that I could only describe as God. Uh, an I am presence. Um, and uh, I, I surrender into this, and it's the final sacrifice, if you like. Uh, a, a complete giving of my self into no selflessness, <laughs> into I amness. Um, and as I do this, um, it's like an, a sacrifice of, of the ego on the altar of God. Uh, I find myself merging with this I amness. So there's a deep mystical union in which I am God. I am I amness. I am this presence. I am this that is here. Um, and in this moment I also find myself if self is the right word because it's much greater than self but I find myself becoming or being uh, the holy mother 
So we have the I am, the, 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 the Holy Father aspect of God, and we have the uh, Holy Mother aspect of God, the, the transcendent and the, and the immanent. Yeah, the, the, the Holy Mother is the, the milk of human kindness, the unbounded, unconditional love um, that is love in action, that pours uh, her, her compassion into the world. So from her breasts flows this, this milk of human kindness that becomes a river of love, uh, a love in action that goes into the world, down the steps, through the landscape of darkness that I had experienced and uh, repopulates it. It becomes a living paradise. It becomes fertile. So it's very uh, tangible. It's very material. It's very uh, earthly. Um, and out of this union of the transcendent and the immanent, the, the divine father and the divine mother, which are really qualities in, my, in, in the heart, in the heart of existence, is born a third quality, which is Christ consciousness. And this Christ consciousness is experienced as the, go the golden child, uh, the birth of the, the Holy Trinity, um, the spark of divine intelligence, and it's very active, and it's very uh, um, uh, co-creative. It's the, the, the co-creative aspect of self that knows itself as God, that knows its I am presence, but goes into the world and co-creates uh, a new reality. Um, and this was mind-blowing to me, as you can imagine. Yeah. So all of this was happening while you were kneeling on the floor, having made this supplication. This, all this unfolded in your consciousness. And meanwhile, if someone had been observing, they would have seen you kneeling on the floor there. And obviously, you, you probably couldn't have articulated it the moment after it happened, but you've had time to sort of think about what the experience was and put it into words. But basically, this all happened in the span of, I don't know how long, a few minutes or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it was like 20 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. I was actually on the floor on my back. I had completely surrendered. Lying down, okay. Lying down, and uh, when I came out of it, I actually remembered word by word, because not only was it a visual experience and, mm -hmm. and a very tangible experience, a sensorial experience, but I actually heard the words. It was almost like um, uh, an internal voice, and it was very specific. Each one of those uh, uh, visual um movements of uh, as I moved from darkness to light uh, had a, had a voice with it almost uh, the voice of God I don't know what some, some, something speaking and I wrote it down because I've got oh. a very uh, uh, good memory <laughs> mm -hmm. I wrote it all down and um, word for word and then I put it away and uh, let it just uh, digest and thought wow that's, that was interesting um, and when I came back to it and reread it I was like blown away mm. And uh, that's when it started to really embed itself in me. And yes, I did contemplate it. And um, I, I, I took it as a very personal message initially. And I applied the, what I felt were two keys, the, the key of presence and the key of openness mm -hmm. into my life through every experience that I was having. And because I'd had it as a very sensorial experience, a kinesthetic experience, at least internally, I could feel when I was off track in my life. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real teaching for me. That was my teaching, if you like. That was my the most profound lesson. Did, you, uh, did you feel either then or now 
Um, you, you listened to my, the interview I did uh, last week, and you know there was an experience I had where I felt like there was some kind of divine being that interceded and, and had some influence on me. And obviously, ultimately, nothing is outside the self. We contain everything. But in a more relative sense, there are sort of different manifestations of the divine. Did you feel that uh, there was actually some sort of anointing, as it were, by by some higher angelic or whatever kind of being that triggered that experience, or was it just really your own biochemistry, your own sort of inner mechanics unfolding themselves? I, I don't like to externalize anything, and I, I, I didn't experience it as, as, as any being or mm-hmm. entity or... Um, it was much more like, like you've just described it, my own biochemistry. I was, I was kind of like perhaps uh, uh, wise enough to, to know that the symbology that it came in was not necessarily literal. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was that. It's a symbology. It, it was more the, the essence of it that was um, important. And I really just saw it as uh, an opening in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned the word God. Now, you know, again, you, you also said that ultimately you realized experientially that you, you merged with God, you and God are one, and we could all ultimately say that. Um, but, you know, there does seem to be a, a kind of a divine intelligence that is, usually is much more vast than our individual expression of it or our individual appreciation of it, and that often orchestrates things in our lives um, in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. Uh, so, I mean, was there any sense that this was a sort of a, a blessing that had somehow been almost like a, a, a recruitment in a way you could say, okay, Amoda, you have the capacity to serve in some way, now let's prepare you for that. Boom, here's this experience, and uh, like that. Yeah, I, it, n- I didn't get that immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it took me probably about a year after that uh, to to get what you're saying, mm-hmm. yeah? And that really came because um, uh, somebody that I had gone to visit who, who works with um, genetic codes, um, and uh, he, he knew nothing about me, and uh, I'd, I'd gone for a reading, if you like, because um, I was at a particular stage in my life where something new felt like it was emerging, and I'd gone into kind of not knowing. I, I dropped my. Uh, I was beginning to uh, drop the uh, the uh, the movement and um, you know release work that I'd been working with people. I, I wasn't. I felt like something new was emerging. So I'd kind of gone for guidance really on that uh, or feedback. And he blew my mind because he said uh, he knew nothing about any of my experiences. He says. Uh, you've got to share this uh, vision with the world. Hmm. I said, what vision are you talking about? I don't have a vision for the world. <laughs> um, he said, you know what I'm talking about. Hmm. And actually, I was with Cabby, my partner, that we'd, uh, we'd only just uh, started a relationship then. And he said, I know what he's talking about, because I'd shared that vision with him. And he said, it's that experience. You've got to share that with the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just that, that sentence, again, just blew my mind because I thought, wow, that's, that's what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. That's what I need. I had no idea how. I didn't know what it meant. Um, but that set me on the road to writing my book. 
and uh, that really unfolded and birthed the vision and then it was like well what do I do with this I don't know how to teach this mm -hmm. I'm used to running workshops and processing people's uh, emotions and uh, helping them release their body armoring and all this stuff and psychodynamics and how do I share this and so I tentatively started speaking about it but that wasn't it um, and uh, all sorts of things happened and I stopped my other teaching and I went into a period of not knowing and once again I was kind of lost and then finally <laughs> finally in the past couple of years and probably really just only in the past year if I'm truly honest although people have seen me around and they think I've been doing this a long time I finally uh, although there's no final resting place but I feel like I finally come home hmm. in myself I finally let go of any agenda of what it should be and what it should look like and I actually don't talk about the vision anymore um, I, I rarely mention it what's happened is that the deeper uh, aspects of it the, the living embodiment of it not only has come forth in my life as a as a day day to day reality, in a very ordinary way, um, but I it's come through my work. Mm -hmm. So now I, I I can offer you know talks and meetings and uh, whatever you want to call them satsangs and retreats. And this whole vision is the bedrock of it. But I never mention it yeah. because. It scares well, reason, people. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't scare me. I don't think it'll scare my listeners either. I, and I think it's it's interesting, and and um, there are so many historical precedents for. It. I mean, Paul on the road to what was it, Tarsus or Damascus or some place. You know, he was a big skeptic and critic and persecutor of Christians, and he was riding along on his donkey, and all of a sudden, zam, bam, he got zapped. You know, and then it ch totally changed his life, and he became one of Christ's uh, prominent, um, you know, this followers. And there's so many in every tradition they have stories like this. Um, and I, I, I'm just curious, it, maybe it's an idle curiosity, but there's a deeper profundity to it, a significance. I, I'm curious about the mechanics of, you know, I don't even, I don't know if either of us, maybe you can probably answer it better than I, but why such things happen and you know, is it karma fructifying? Is it some divine intervention? Is it, you know, a destiny that we're meant to fulfill that we're finally waking up to? And it's, it's I don't know, it's fascinating for some reason. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Because whenever I've felt that this is my destiny, well, no, not this is my destiny, but I, whenever any aspect of my personality um, or sense of identity has become attached to it, it backfires. Mm. It, that's not it. It's, it, it you know, because as, as long as I think that I'm important. Yeah, I'm not implying then, that. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that you would be you know, thinking, oh, I'm so cool, I had this big, big experience. Yeah. But, you know, but the, the experience was not insignificant and, and it obviously set you on a new course and, and, it's it's just interesting in the whole spiritual smorgasbord of you know this what this interview show is and what you know whole spirituality in general it's something that i think is worthy of taking a look at from time to time that, that these yeah. things these things happen and and what they mean yeah i mean it's no different to any awakening mm -hmm. uh, any enlightenment 
um, I mean, how does that happen for, for anyone? It happens in many different ways, and everyone has their own particular unique flavor and expression of it. And for some, as you know, it, sits, it happens by, you know, sitting in front of a wall for years and years and years, like yeah. Adyashanti does. Yeah. Um, and, for, you know, for Gangaji, it was in, in her own unique way. And mm -hmm. each one has um, their own unique expression. This is how it happened for me. True. But it's only when I dropped the imagery of it and the symbology of it and even the, the language of it that actually the deeper um, expression of it has come through. Because whilst I was still attached to uh, talking about God and the Holy Mother and Christ consciousness, and maybe that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that, and for some people that works, it ultimately wasn't the whole expression for me. It's only when I dropped that and just allowed the experience to infiltrate my uh, body mind, my living experience, without any attachment to it as an experience itself, that actually it started to become a very fresh, awakened perspective that can be expressed however is relevant for the needs of whoever I'm interacting with <laughs> or whatever I'm interacting with. I think you were beginning to talk about that. You were beginning to talk about presence and acceptance, you know, masculine and feminine qualities and all. And then I interrupted you with some questions. So perhaps you'd like to get back to that thread. The two keys, I think you called two them. Two keys, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I caught, let's just go back to the, the title of my book was How to Find God in Everything and, and that was um, inspired by a quote uh, by uh, the Indian poet Tagore which was in order to find God you must welcome everything mm -hmm. and that was my uh, personal experience but that was encapsulating these two keys that uh, to welcome everything is to open so wide uh, in unbounded acceptance that nothing is denied, no experience, no uh, challenge, no darkness, no uh, whatever we might label it as sin or evil or, um, you know, everything is allowed, everything is open to, everything is, is, uh, is here as it is in order to be fully experienced, to be fully engaged with, to be fully met, to be fully allowed and in that allowing there's um, a penetration if you like of the masculine into the feminine, there's a penetration of presence into that vast openness which is direct seeing, direct knowing. One thought that kept occurring to me as I was reading your book and hearing you say that is that um, isn't uh, the capacity to accept somewhat important. For in, what I mean by that is, if let's say a person has been abused and worn down to the point of a nervous breakdown, you know that they're just sapped uh, of all their energy, and and uh, you know the slightest challenge is almost too much to bear. Um, it's kind of almost glib to say that such a person should just welcome everything. Somehow they need recuperation. They need, um, you know, strengthening in order to be able to accept everything. Otherwise, everything, 
what to say of everything, even the slightest thing, could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yes, and, and, and that's where there's a lot of um, misunderstanding and what accepting everything means. Mm -hmm. it, very often we think that accepting everything is just saying yes to everything, saying yes to the abuse, yes to the, you know, yes, 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 and, and there's a, a kind of pass yeah, yeah. There's a passive uh, acceptance. Mm -hmm. This acceptance is uh, way beyond that. It's the acceptance that includes the non-acceptance, that includes the need to withdraw, the need to take care of self, the need to create boundaries, the need to say no. But it's not an avoidance of that which is labeled as dark. Because I, I find and, and that there's a lot of talk or idea in spiritual circles or some spiritual circles um, uh, that, that there is no suffering right. and um, I've had that in some of my retreats where I've had people who uh, you know one or two people who have been deeply immersed in non-duality teachings particularly who have uh, been absolutely furious with me whenever <laughs> I talk about suffering as a doorway to uh, awakening or to direct seeing or direct truth um, who say there is no suffering it's all an illusion I think they're in their heads absolutely yeah absolutely and but this needs to be kind of dissected in some way and um, so so you know unless the, I, I read something lovely the other day well, I don't know if it's lovely but that that confirmed this for me um, I think it was actually by something that I read by Andrew Harvey mm -hmm who was talking about the um, uh, Upanishads in that the first kind of awakening or the first realization is that the world is an illusion and uh, that's the first kind of awakening because as long as we think the world is all that's all there is it's the only thing that's real then we're caught in the in the, in the matrix if you like or the the, the samsara uh, the Maya um, and, and then the second awakening is that um, uh, Brahman is the ultimate, rea ult ultimate reality, so emptiness is, is the ultimate reality. So the world is an illusion, and uh, so the world of form is an illusion, and the world of the formlessness is, is the ultimate reality. But the thing that... I think you're, you're actually referring to a three-part thing by Shankara. He, he said the world is an illusion, Brahman alone is real, the world is Brahman. Exactly, that's right. it. The world is a manifestation of that. Right. And that's the, the final part is the part that's often missed out. Right, right. We stop, many people stop short at that point. And it's that that is the, the acceptance, mm -hmm. the, um, the openness. That's, that's the Holy Mother to me. That's when we're fully engaged with life, um, fully meeting life as it is, which includes the suffering, includes the darkness, includes the pain, but isn't identified with that. But that doesn't make us... Um, detached from it. You often uh, quoted the, that quote by Neem Karoli Baba, where someone came to him whose son had died or something, and and you know they were expecting comfort and solace, and and he said, uh, I, what, what, "What was the quote? How does it go?" I love suffering. Mm -hmm. It brings me closer to God. Yeah. Now, playing devil's advocate on that. Uh, does that mean that uh, a torture chamber is a, is a holy place, that it's, a, uh, it's an opportunity for, for tremendous evolution? 
well, I certainly wouldn't like to be in that position, um, nor to see anyone else in, in that position. But yes, everything can be a doorway. Yeah. As long as it is, as long as it exists. And we've had the Holocaust and we have torture chambers and we have horrific things happening. And that doesn't mean to say that they need to be perpetuated. You know, this is where the co-creator comes in, that we can co-create our reality um, as, as, as awakened beings. We have that opportunity, so we don't perpetuate the suffering. But as long as it's here in our current reality, then everything has the potential to be that doorway. Yeah, I must say I agree with you. Um, it's, it might seem harsh or heartless, and it has driven many people to atheism, but um, if we understand God to be this evolutionary force that's that's fostering the, the growth and, and evolution of, of all beings in the universe then you can't really take him out of any situation no matter how horrific there must be uh, it must be some kind of it's hard to understand but it must be some sort of tough love situation yeah i mean i, I everything ha is is part of the evolutionary uh, unfoldment of life mm -hmm. and if god is everything right and if god is uh, both transcendent and Im imminent and uh, you know uh, is what is is here uh, nothing can be excluded so and that means nothing that we experience in this earthly life can be excluded that doesn't mean to say that we are again victims of that or passive observers of that we can play our role in it and we have free will and that's part of also part of the evolutionary context but that uh, experience of suffering can be our doorway to that uh, awakening of that co-creative capacity. Mm. And I suppose a person might ask, well, how could God do such and such to people if he's a loving God? But the, you know, the, the, the answer on the deepest level would be, well, God's doing that to himself. You know? <laughs> yeah. There isn't an external being. There right. isn't an external God that's doing anything to us. The thing is that God is who we are. Mm -hmm. We are God. And God is expressing itself through us as us. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's consciousness awakening to itself. Yes. That's, and that's what's happening in, in our current uh, evolutionary climate, if you like, is that there's only one way that God can come to know itself, himself, herself, uh, and that's through, through those living uh, entities that have the capacity for self-awareness. And currently, human beings are the only ones that have that. I think dogs are pretty close. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we're at the, the leading edge of that. and uh, on, on this planet, so far as we're aware. On this planet, as far as we're aware. There may be other, other beings elsewhere. Um, but we are getting to, or we are being given, or we are having the opportunity to know ourselves as the divine co-creative force um, th through the process of awakening and this is God becoming conscious of itself and that's part of the evolutionary context so there's nothing that can be excluded from that and how can we get conscious if it isn't through the pain and the suffering well, it doesn't mean that it has to stay here forever. <laughs> no, and that it, and it's, you express that very beautifully, and it's one of my favorite themes. You know, um, I, I wouldn't say how can we get conscious if not other than through pain and suffering, because I don't think that that's a absolute necessity. But 
I, it's probably always going to be part of the mix, and, and at least you know there will be phases of that in the in the development of any any soul, you know, but not exclusively that. Um, no, of course not. And no. Certainly, if we take the microcosm of our own lives, in my life, the the the, the suffering um, that used to be a part of this experience certainly isn't here anymore. Right, and you're growing. You know, yeah, I'm sure you're growing very beautifully now, but not not through the hard knocks that you once had to no, go through. No, because one meets whatever challenges come, and there's always challenges in life. With a with a already the the presence and openness are. Are, are the meeting place therefore the, the the resistance and the having to crash through things and have things break down and shattered isn't here so everything is met in the bowl of grace mm. that's where grace comes in so it's gracefully met and in that there is um, uh, a much more um, smooth if you like or, or free-flowing experience of life and that's very beautiful. So whatever comes, even when it's uh, apparently challenging, it has a beauty to it. And um, uh, there's always love and gratitude. Um, so, so it changes in one's personal life. So, so the suffering doesn't have to be here. And neither is suffering perpetuated in oneself or in one's environment towards others. So if you take that collectively... Um, as we each awaken, then the suffering that we experience or see in the world doesn't necessarily have to be perpetuated. And that, again, is part of the evolutionary perspective as more of humanity wakes up to itself. Beautiful. It's only the ignorance that's creating the suffering. Exactly. <laughs> the of who we are. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, perhaps we could say that if the infusion of the, the divine were were you know to the to the brim in enough people then that sort of you know blissful um, sweet uh, essence that you know one experiences in one's own life would characterize the entire society you know. that is yeah. the the dream yes that yeah. is the, the potential perhaps mm -hmm. uh, but let's just just to finish that off perhaps I just want to reiterate, because I find this a very uh, pertinent and important point, is that unless, as individuals, we can open to whatever we might label as dark or painful or, you know, whatever we're kind of repressing or, or shutting off from within ourselves and our own experience, um, unless we can open to that and embrace that um, just by meeting it and allowing it and asking what is really here within this then that will not change I'm glad you came back to that because I wanted to probe into that a little bit more a few minutes ago we were, I was asking well what if one really doesn't have the capacity to accept everything and, and to be open to everything because one is so beaten down by life and, and feels like one you know, can't take another, another beat <laughs> another hit without collapsing and you said, well, this doesn't mean passivity or, or just victim, becoming a victim and letting people walk all over you. It could also mean, you know, saying no or, or, you know, standing up to something. So perhaps you could probe into that a little bit more to make it more clear to people because I think people might find it confusing and it might sound like you're advocating a kind of a, um, you know, just do whatever you want to me attitude um, as opposed to one that's more sort of proactive and balanced. Yeah. Um, 
I'll give an example from my life, perhaps. Um, there have been certain relationships in my life that I would uh, call abusive. And uh, there has come a point in my life where I've had to say no. I mean, this is, you know, earlier on. But in learning to say no, um, that abuse has stopped and a strengthening of a sense of self, a psychological sense of self that has been a, a necessary healthy boundary was then able to, to, to be part of my life which meant that I, I was a healthier, more whole person and able to have healthier relationships. So in that sense there's a definite no a definite boundary created and a definite sort of sense of self rather than this sort of no sense of self where I just allowed everything to happen to me because ultimately I felt not good enough. Mm -hmm. But So con contrast that, oh go ahead, I'm sorry. So I was just going to say when a cycle of abuse has been set up, if someone mm -hmm. has a history of that and that is a particular pattern, um, once that cycle has been set even when one sets healthy boundaries, um, it's easy for that to be re-triggered in one's life. It's almost like a, a, a physiological pathway that gets re-triggered by certain situations. And that's when we can apply our inquiry if one's ready for that and not everyone's ready for inquiry uh, initially people may need to be um, you know to, to, to have these healthy boundaries created uh, first but once that's been created to then inquire into that trigger and to ask what is really uh, in my experience it was a when, when something got triggered that way a violation of a boundary uh, the feeling was one of being crushed. So I would really feel psychologically, emotionally crushed, almost physically crushed, and I would shrink. And that shrinking would manifest as uh, just withdrawing into, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> withdrawing into myself, feeling very, very small, and um, almost like a glazedness would come over me. So there'd be a Sylvia Plath used to call the bell jar to be a sort of big glass wall between me and life so I wasn't fully feeling the vibrancy of life and um, um, <clears throat> when I finally inquired into what is being crushed here who well for me it wasn't so much who is being crushed but what is being crushed here what is crushed in this moment that I'm experienced crushedness and I looked at that just in that moment of questioning it I couldn't find anything and the crushedness disappeared and then I was fully engaged with life again so that's when we can move beyond any idea of protecting ourselves creating boundaries saying no but actually saying yes to the experience that is here which is experience of being crushed. Hmm. So, let's just try to see if we can clarify that a little bit more. Um, so there's this paradox there between, yeah. uh, you know, 
accepting, loving what is, you know, to use Byron Katie's term, and, and accepting things as they come, taking them as they come. And, you know, it's, it's almost like the Shakespearean thing, you know, whether to stand against the sea of troubles or, you know, and, or by opposing end them or whatever. Um, I'm slaughtering the quote. But there's this, there's this balancing act, it would, it would seem, between taking a stand and saying, no, I don't want it this way, it should move that way, and at the same time, loving what is and accepting everything as it is. And uh, do you see that as as a, something one needs to grow into the ability to do artfully, or uh, is it uh, that I'm misconceiving the whole instruction here? Okay, so let's see. If, it, it is it is a paradoxical situation. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can look at this in a slightly different way. It's like saying no. If somebody comes at you uh, with a knife or if somebody comes at you with verbal abuse, mm -hmm. you say no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that can be said no to. But then the internal experience of... Um, Accepting that that was a situation that you had no... You know, that you couldn't anticipate and had no control over, and you, you basically, you know, there, there's a reason for it having happened, accepting it in that way. Yeah, the acceptance is, is more in, 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 in allowing oneself to feel deeply without becoming a victim of the feelings that are triggered by that situation. Okay. It's not so much accepting the situation, because if a harmful situation needs to be changed, we have the free will and the capacity as human beings to or as living creatures to stop that and protect ourselves to protect the life form from that harm that's part of our divine right but to then uh, either deny the internal experience by creating some kind of defense that might manifest as uh, a kind of uh, war between the external and the internal where we then uh, perhaps attack the external situation or defend ourselves to the point that we become self-righteous or defend ourselves by not actually feeling the tenderest feelings that were triggered by that and creating a kind of defensive system a kind of psychological defense that perpetuates the idea that I'm a victim and he's a perpetrator. It's that more subtle mm. um, uh, awareness of any rebuilding or perpetuation of a of a kind of duality that says he's right, I'm wrong, or rather he's wrong, I'm right. <laughs> yeah. So let's and take an example. Let's say you're walking down the street in New York City and someone pulls a gun on you and steals your wallet, um, which happens every day in New York City, <laughs> probably a lot of other places. So, you know, there's obviously adrenaline and fear and, and whatnot in, in the instance. And then, you know, a month later, you could be a person who's still afraid to walk down the street in New York City, or you could be a person who's kind of processed that experience, accepted that it happened for some reason, God knows what, but it happened, and moved on. And, you know, like water off a duck's back, it's been, it's been shaken off, and, and you're, you're cruising on. Would that, would that be a good, a good example? Yeah, but not shaken off by denying it. No. 
It's by investigating what is it that has been threatened here. Mm -hmm. Because there has been a threat, right. both a physical and a psychological threat. And not to deny that threat. It's to investigate what is it that is ultimately threatened here. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about getting, it's like getting right inside it. Neither avoiding nor, 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 nor attaching to it. Neither saying, well, this is terrible, it's happened, and I've been threatened, and so I'm going to create another identity out of this because I'm the victim, that's the perpetrator. But neither to say, oh, well, it happened, and I'm just going to deny that experience and not even feel anything about it. Hmm. It's to really allow oneself to feel vulnerable, to feel uh, tender, to feel broken open, but then to investigate what is it that is vulnerable. What is it that has been broken open? Mm -hmm. What has been threatened here? What is the, the, the fear of loss or death or, you know, something being taken from me? And to investigate that. It's that. It's the opening to that. It's, kind of, it's like the inside of the inside. Yeah. Now, this gets into an area which I often bring up, which is um, prescription versus description. Um, is it... Is, the, is this something one can prescribe? Say yes, this happened to you. Investigate. You know, is, does, does a person have a lot of volition in terms of um, looking at these things and, and dealing them in the, in the way that you're saying, or is it more that a that pe some people, perhaps through other means entirely, have developed the capacity to do this spontaneously? You know, understand my question. Mm. You mean is it is it something that that well, we I, learn or is it yeah in your own case for instance um, you know when things happen to you now I'm sure that you process them in the in a way that's very different than you might have 20 years ago yeah. uh, a, a, along the lines that you're explaining here um, and that that ability has become somewhat second nature yes. uh, did it become second nature through trial and error, through baby steps of getting better and better at it? Um, or was there some other kind of, was there a shift brought about through some entirely different means, say that, that dramatic experience you had or meditation practice or anything else that has kind of brought you to the point where this is the way you, you function spontaneously? Sure. Um, I think that it can happen both ways. But for me, it, it did happen both ways. Mm -hmm. um, following the, the vision that I described earlier, there was one particular situation very shortly after, after that, perhaps within weeks, perhaps within months, I can't remember, where um, I, I, it was a psychological experience. It wasn't a physical experience. But I, I faced the fear of abandonment which was an ex existent, not only a, an abandonment on a, on a human level um, because of the breakup of my relationship, but uh, more of an existential abandonment. I felt I'd been abandoned by life itself. Um, and this was a very dark place. It was like a dark abyss. Um, I faced it consciously because of the vision that I experienced, it, it sort of created a template for um, applying that uh, presence and openness to this experience. And I noticed how I distracted myself from the experience by um, just avoiding uh, being still internally. I don't mean necessarily externally, but internally. I avoided being still so I would uh, 
jump into my fantasy mind or I'd read a book or I'd pick up the phone or I'd um, check the computer or I'd make a cup of tea or clean the flat or anything, both an external distraction and an internal distraction. And when this black abyss emerged again in my life, I turned around to face it with absolute presence and with absolute openness. I didn't avoid it anymore. And it was in that moment, which was a, 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 another kind of death, that I really saw, if you like, or experienced or cut through any idea that there was um, anything to be abandoned from. <laughs> mm. It was like it cut the, the core, and it's from, from then on, it was this natural... Um, uh, inquiry into what is being threatened here, what is vulnerable here, that just happened naturally mm -hmm. after that. Well, you said something in there that kind of pointed to what I was getting at. You said that because I had had that vision, I had the capacity to, you know, face this rather than running around cleaning the flat and making tea. Uh, I, I had the capacity to stop and face it and work through it. Now, if you had not had had that vision, which most people have not had, you know, then where would that have left you? Okay. Uh, and so this is kind of a practical question because I'm thinking of people who might want to apply what you're saying but might not have had visions or anything else. Okay. And, and so, you know, how do they get from, you know, point A to point B? How do they sort of put this into practice? Is it, and I've been kind of hitting on this for the last half hour or so, the question of capacity to do this uh, versus... Um, you know, just going through the motions and yet not really doing it because you don't have the inner strength or something. Sure. Okay. Well, that's where we have teachers. Okay. That's where a spiritual teacher comes in or mm -hmm. an you know, awakened teacher. That's, that's, that's what, yeah, that's the purpose of that. For me, I didn't have one teacher. Mm -hmm. um, that experience was my teacher. Um, for 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 many people, uh, then then the teacher is is that is that. You did have in a way you had teachers. You went to Osho's ashram and you did kind of a medita yeah, but I meditation practice, jump jumping meditation. Yeah. Or whatever. I didn't I didn't get that. But it could have led that. you to the point where that experience was triggered. You know, there could yes, have, I think yeah. everything was a preparation. Yeah, I think exactly. without uh, the preparation that I had, mm -hmm. my personality vehicle was so messed up, if you like, yeah. that I, I might not have got it. Right. So it was all a preparation, perhaps, which led to that vision mm -hmm. being able to emerge through me. Otherwise, I may not have understood it or integrated it or been available for it. You know, absolutely, that's what uh, meditation practice is for, or spiritual practice is for. It's like cooking cooking the pot. It's, it's preparing the way, preparing the vessel, so that when the deeper surrender can happen, uh, it, the guru can come in with, with, the, with the Zen stick. Yeah. But that's what a teacher is for. That's what, you know, Gangaji had with Papaji. That's what, you know, Adyashanti had with his Zen master and whatever. So, you know, and, 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 and that's what happens. You know, that's what I have with the people that come to see me. Is we don't have to have the vision. In fact, it's great not to have the vision in that way because mostly people get attached to the vision. Yeah. And then that becomes the holy grail. And, and that's not it at all. That's just the way it emerged for me. So, yes, that's what we're here for, to remind each other, to support each other in that. And I think on one's own it's quite difficult to have, like you say, the, 
volition to apply that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is something that we discussed before the interview, that, that, or b- briefly or at least brought up, the, the idea of whether a, a practice of some sort is either necessary or desirable for awakening or for preparation for awakening or some such thing. Would you like to elaborate on that just a little bit more? Yeah, it's a really interesting point, this, and one that comes up a lot, and again, I think there's a lot of confusion about it. and. It dep- it's like there's a different answer depending on which side of the fence you are. Mm-hmm. It's like before awakening, <laughs> yes, we need a practice. Mm-hmm. I get so many people coming to my groups who intellectually get awakening, intellectually get non-duality, but goodness gracious me, they cannot be still and know themselves because they've never experienced true silence true inner silence so it's like wow and 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 you 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 got it you got awakening but you 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 can't be still um do they realize that they haven't got it or do they cling to their intellectual notion and think uh, and cling to thinking that that's what all this is about yeah there's a kind of split there yeah they kind of flip between the two Mm. and you know it's only in, in questioning and probing a little deeper it's like oh wow i really can't be be uh, anchored or, or know the silence of my true nature because my mind is so busy and I've been avoiding it and yet I kind of get what this non-duality thing is well you know hopefully that's the point that I can go in and uh, say come on let's <laughs> let's do the work here so yes we do need the practice we do need to sit in silence we do need the meditation we do need the emotional catharsis that's another thing that I see a lot is there's so much emotional armoring that actually it's very difficult to break through to the light of being if you like so all of this prepares the way but then you have the other side of the coin where once awakening has happened none of those things matter and none of them have any impact and you see that it's not the those practices that caused the awakening um, the awakeness if you like is always here with right. or without the practice mm-hmm. and then the danger becomes and this is also something that we see a lot is that there's still an attachment to the practice and so there's a struggle. Oh, I must do my meditation practice, otherwise I'm not a spiritual being. Well, hang on, you've just had a glimpse of the awakened, uh, the true nature of awakenness, and yet there is still an attachment. So, so it's, it depends where you're coming from, what the answer is. Again, it's a paradoxical situation. In my case, there's, there's no, I, I, I have no practice anymore. Mm-hmm. I do, uh, but, you know, I don't claim to be... I, I, I'm, I'm real simple about it. I mean, I, I have people telling me I should give it up, uh, but I don't claim to be awakened or enlightened or anything else. And I, I'm, I'm simple in the sense that I find it so gratifying, I, very restful, soothing, enjoyable, enlivening, you know, uh, deepening, whatever. And as long as that's my experience, great, you know, I'll do it. But I, I have another, I have other friends, one fellow in particular says, nothing happens to me anymore when I meditate because the, that, you know, pure awareness is there whether I'm meditating or not. But he still does another kind of practice which is more of an exploratory thing, seeing what, in what ways that pure awareness can be kind of, you know, stimulated or what can, what can manifest out of that and, and so on. Um, but I think, you know, perhaps the takeaway point is 
go by what seems right to you. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, once awakening has happened, it's it, it actually doesn't matter what happens, <laughs> um, yeah. whether you have a practice or don't have a practice, or whether you, you know, any of that. For, for me, it's like all the movements that I've been doing, all the catharsis, all the letting go, all the screaming mm -hmm. and shouting, none of that has any import to me whatsoever. It, it, it's actually uh, repellent in the sense that it feels um, jarring to this, to this whole body-mind vehicle. Uh, I think I would find it jarring too. So I guess that, that also comes down to what kind of practices are we talking about here because some might be appropriate and some not. And, you know, one might move from one practice to something entirely different at a later stage of the game. Yeah. And, and the same with formal meditation practice. There's no impulse for it because I truly experience violence as the, as the, the, the backdrop of my life. So it informs everything that I'm doing and everything I am. However, I also love just sinking into uh, a deeper silence which uh, manifests as sitting still for a long time. Mm -hmm. That usually comes when I'm with groups of people. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're, we're doing retreats, then just sitting in that silence is absolutely beautiful. So, and if we wish to define it that way, we could say, okay, well, that's your practice now, you know? Yeah. If we wanted to call it a practice. But yeah. <laughs> it's just not so um, formalized. Yeah. It's just, it's not so much what you do and what kind of practice you have. It's just the, it's the identification with the practice. It's deriving mm. our identity from it. If we feel that we have to be uh, doing something in order to be spiritual or in order to be awakened or in order to, to live in a higher state of consciousness, then we're simply perpetuating another sense of identity and it can get very subtle. So right. just being authentic and honest with oneself mm -hmm. as to what is moving through one's life. And I, I do get the impression that regardless of whether or not you're doing any sort of practice or whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, your life continues to be one of discovery and exploration. You even mentioned that in the preface to your book that you're kind of apologizing to your friends for all the, the transitions you keep going through or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a continual unfoldment mm -hmm. and it becomes ever more refined and, and, and yet there's, it's like there's a sense that nothing is changing, everything is just uh, um, an expression of stillness or silence and yet everything is moving at the same time and continually unfolding and evolving and becoming more of itself but there's no sense of like I've got to perfect myself or become a better person or improve my personality all of that has uh, I'd say more or less vanished for me I used to mm. think that I had to really work on myself in order to be better and stronger and especially when it came to interfacing with the world Mm -hmm. And especially through my work, because since I wrote How to Find God in Everything, I've been moved to speak about it, like we said, and teach about it, and it's evolved. And it was that that still had a hold over me. It's like, how can I present myself better? How can I be stronger? How can I... Because I felt like I, 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 was, I still had a broken personality. So, and, and that still carried some shred of shame or discomfort with it. But... Somehow that's gone now, and it's like I am who I am, and I'm 
messed up and I'm well I'm not messed up at all but my history is messed up yeah. and it's been painful and it's got burdens and it's been challenging and I'm not perfect and there's a whole load of things that I would rather have been different but none of that touches me anymore so mm. there's a freshness and there's an innocence and it allows something else to come through and none of that matters and that's what's changed yeah. and that's liberating and it's taken me a long time since the vision, since my uh, experience of uh, discovery of awakeness, to come through. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't immediate. It's uh, and, and still something is changing and evolving. I don't know where it's leading to. <laughs> beautiful. I love listening to you because you. Well, you you articulate my own experience so beautifully, um, better than I could, and uh, I think you. See, you know, you speak for a lot of people who might be tempted to fall into kind of simplistic notions of, uh, you know, what awakening is or where they are on the path and so on. And you kind of put it into a broader context that ex kind of simultaneously accepts perfection and, and progress at the same time. Um, you know, there's there's stability and yet and yet growth and the two uh, and in a, in a way something is static and that will never be improved upon on the other hand there's infinite room for improvement and you know you, you just uh, explained this very well I, I appreciate it um, you mentioned that you know it was a little bit um, gutsy of you perhaps to use the word God in a book title and that you you actually got some flack from people about that let's talk a little bit about God for a minute um, what in what sense do you use that in the title and what it what is your concept or understanding of God and and the whole the whole thing well interestingly I, I actually don't really use the word God anymore nice. it has fallen away by itself mm -hmm. um, not because, yeah, not for any reason, not because I've tried to use it or not use it, and if it comes through, that's great, um, but it's just fallen away, and really what I'm saying with the word God is, is uh, well, we can use so many words, and I, I, as I like to say, all words are lies, you know, there is no word that is truth, the only truth is silence, <laughs> um, and... Uh, be, be still and know that I am God. Exactly, hmm. and uh, it's the living experience of that that is truth. So, I use words uh, uh, in many different ways, and they're often paradoxical and conflicting and confusing. So, when I offer my 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 groups, uh, I can see people's minds getting very uh, perplexed because each time I actually use different words, not through um, any uh, pre-planned. Uh, idea of that or, or you know plan but it's just what happens so sometimes I talk about divinity and, and God and sometimes I talk about something completely different and it all points to the same truth and uh, I think words need to be both accurate but also they, they're never it so um, what are we talking about? <laughs> Talk, talking about God well let me ask you this um, the title of your book was okay. How to Find God in Everything so, nice hard-nosed question would be, have you found God in everything? If we can substitute the word awakeness for God, mm -hmm. then yes. 
awakeness and everything awakeness i think that's what i was uh that's what it ultimately means it's it's awakeness that which is truly alive and here and what we were just touching on the both the unchanging stillness but also the perpetual unfoldment of of life from that stillness out of that stillness and the beautiful paradox or dance of that is is God mm. beautiful let me let me let's dwell on that for a bit um, you know when I see a science program or something and, they, and they're showing what's going on inside of a cell to me that's like whoa God <laughs> you know the, the the sort of the the unfathomable intelligence that's that's orchestrating that which is you know one little cell which is so far beyond our ability to conceive of what what's really happening in there and we consist of trillions of them uh and you know or you just watch a nature program with fish swimming through the ocean or something again you know god just this uh profound display and display of of uh an intelligence that's beyond our comprehension almost even though essentially we are that but uh you know in terms of our individual faculties to conceive or, or understand or perceive it seems to be beyond that um so when i when i read first read your title how to find god in everything i was sort of thinking along those lines uh you know f refining the capacity to experience such as such that the wonder of uh, the intelligence that's scintillating in every particle of creation becomes much more evident to us. Yes, and in that perception, it's like that, that which perceives that intelligence manifesting and coming through everything becomes aware of itself. Mm -hmm. It's like the perceiver becomes aware of that which is perceiving and that is the experience of God mm. because as long as we're separating that which we're perceiving from the vehicle of perception then we're not really experiencing the oneness of everything the God in everything we're still projecting it outwards and saying, wow, there's God manifesting as that or manifesting as that. And that's also a subtle um, uh, thing that kind of keeps happening um, where there's an idea of what God is. But it's when it kind of turns in on itself. It's like we, we perceive so deeply into the nature of reality that it sort of turns back in on itself. And then we become aware. It becomes aware of itself. And that is indescribable. That has no words and that has no sense of separation or self-perceiving anything. That's the experience of God. So are you referring not only to, let's say, the experience, the state of samadhi or whatever they, you want to call it, where the self realizes itself in a sort of an abstract, unmanifest sense, but are you also saying that as you walk down the street and see a car and a tree and a child and a dog or whatever, uh, recognizing the divinity in the objective world, recognizing that that self which was once discovered within is actually the essential nature of everything that was apparently without. Uh, is that what you mean by finding God in everything? 
Yes, yes. Except that as you're walking down the street, there's more likely to be a, a subtle sense of separation as well. There, ha there had better be a little bit of one at least. Yeah, otherwise you'd, you'd be walking <laughs> in front of the car. So right. it's kind of part of the, the, the dance or the paradox or the, you know, the, uh, the, the, there, there is always a separation as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's only in the contemplation of it that there's true oneness. Yeah. But uh, there, there's a saying in Sanskrit of uh, lesha vidya, that faint remains of ignorance, and and the understanding is that there has to be that in order for you not to get hit by buses and so on yes. if you're, you're going to walk down yeah. the street. But it it can get to the point, as I understand it, where it's just a faint remains, and that actually the predominant experience, even when out in the world, is of that sort of that oneness that that becomes predominant with a sort yes. of a, a sheen of duality uh, left on the surface of it in order to make living possible. Yes, I, I think so. And, and But also, I think that different uh, manifestations will, will trigger a, a biological response that has more of that separation experience mm -hmm. in it or challenging situations, psychological or emotional situations. And that's when we're called to consciously see the God in everything. Mm. So like for instance, driving down a busy highway with trucks whizzing by you, you probably need more of a heavy dose of duality than you do if you're just sitting at the seashore looking at the clouds or something. Is that, <laughs> yes. is that, is that what you're saying? I think so, yes. <laughs> uh. Good. Tell us a bit about what's in your books. Um, is is this one kind of old hat, finding God and everything, and 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 this one is really more your your kind of current way of of approaching things? Well, how to find God and everything's the classic, I guess. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's uh, kind of quite poetic and graceful, and it was written in a very expanded state of being, and um, it kind of is the core of my teaching, and um, so it's it's kind of the classic. Change Your Life, Change Your World actually arose out of um, uh, a 10-step online program I was going to uh, develop based on how to find God and everything. It's like I, I, I took 10 lessons out. When I looked at the vision and um, the, the sort of teachings within that, I saw 10 lessons in there, 10 very specific um, conscious ways of relating to life that could assist this this um, awareness of what's awake in everything mm -hmm. uh, and in oneself and it was going to be an online course and I, I, I ended up not wanting to develop it as an online course I, I got fed up with online courses <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was sitting on my desk and I was about to throw out the pile of paper that it was all written on and then I thought wow this is a book it's such a shame to throw it away. This is useful. So I created it into 10 lessons, and it flowed really well. And actually, it's been very useful and um, kind of practical in a sense because there are lessons in there. It's like a spiritual workbook that, that um, people can do as they go about their daily lives, um, a kind of practice, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had lots of reports that it's been very beneficial for people to change their perspective. It's like not seeing from the eyes of a victim, but seeing from the eyes of oneness or from the eyes of God. And it's really helped them. Um, so that's where that came from. But uh, since that book was published, my work in some ways has evolved again. And I'm writing another book now. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, 
only evolved in the sense that it's it's the the language has become more accurate, and I look at um, uh, some of the myths of awakening and uh, some of the uh, subtle. Uh, Games that ego still plays in what awakening is and what does it mean and what does enlightenment mean and how how does this how can this really be embodied in our lives that is really serving a purpose both for ourselves and for humanity um, and so it's it's kind of a, a bit deeper if you like and more refined than than the previous books so I'm working on that right now. That's nice. Um, there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln where. Um he changed his mind about something entirely and um, he was, you know, someone criticized him for it and he said, I, I forget the exact quote, but he said, uh, you know, I, I don't think much of a man who can't completely change his his mind, you know. Uh, we And not that you've done a 360 degree turnaround, um, but that I, I, there's this theme that, uh, with you apparently where there's always the next horizon and you keep growing toward, you know, uh, more complete expression or a different expression or more appropriate expression or whatever um, and I really I respect that I admire that I've some of the people I've interviewed when I ask this question about well how, how are things developing now they kind of look at me like I'm from Mars or something um, you know it's like how could there be any more development I'm there uh, right <laughs> you know but I'm of the opinion that God himself isn't there yet. There's, there's an ongoing evolution that, that takes place on all levels of life. Mm. That's why I'm very um, uh, excited or uh, engaged with the whole evolutionary perspective. There's always mm -hmm. something new. And it's not like I'm throwing out something old and replacing it. And I'm not saying that... I mean, I, I only have one thing to say, if you like. People say, oh, what are you writing about now? Well, the same thing. There's nothing else to write about. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I'm changing topics or saying, well, that method's no good and we're doing this one now. Not at all, because there's no method anyway. But it's just as you've described. It's just a, a, an evolution and a, a more complete way of expression. And I'm always responding to the needs of the time. So what was relevant five years ago has a different form of expression now. And both in myself and in the world so I'm just responding to that and it's both my blessing and my curse because I'm always at the leading edge of my life you know there's always something new unfolding but I just trust that and that's where it's going <laughs> that's great uh, I was a student of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi and two of his favorite quotes were <clears throat> on the one hand there's nothing new under the sun but then his other favorite one of his other favorite quotes was only a new seed can yield a new crop you know that so those seem to contradict one another, but I think uh, they're both true each in their own realm and and um, the expressed value of life is ever evolving yeah yeah hmm. is there anything we haven't covered that um I was remiss in not asking you about that you'd like to bring out, like for instance, this new book you're writing i mean how is what what's that going to be about <laughs> well, there's only one thing <laughs> yeah, right. um, Well, it's only just in the process of being written, so I, I don't have a publishing deal yet. Just at this point, yeah. Well, no, it, it's it's being written, but until I until the publishing deal is you know signed, sealed, and delivered, I'm mm -hmm. not at liberty really to to say what the title is because that's often changed or in some way. Um, so there's no release date, but I'm working on it, and it's likely to be, you know, uh, have an idea of, of publishing details at some point this year. Um, 
but it's it's essentially uh, I can give you the working title the working title is radical awakening the birth of a new you and a new new world and again it's 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 still based on the vision although I don't go into it in 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 that terminology but it's taking this whole you know what is being birthed now what is what is what is being birthed in you as an individual and what is being birthed in the world and how can this be fully embodied and expressed in a way that uh, embraces both the absolute truth of stillness uh, and the relative truth of movement mm. and uh, and what does this mean to the times that we live in because this is what's coming through right now and and that's it in a nutshell nice so I, I talk about uh, you know, there's, there's an area of, of, of life that is very often overlooked, and I don't know, uh, in fact, it's always overlooked, I think, and that's the body. Mm-hmm. In the sense, it, when we're talking enlightenment or awakening, is, you know, I am not my body. Well, you know, if I stick a pin in you, you are your body. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that light, if we're talking of enlightenment as light, it's coming through our relationship to body. Mm-hmm. So it's it's... It's, it's recognizing the absolute truth that I am not my body and, um, uh, and embracing that the body is the vehicle for enlightenment in this particular experience that we're having. And uh, I explore that quite a bit and also relationship. That's brilliant. Um, I mean, the absolute was there before there was a universe and when there was only sort of molten <clears throat> molten gas or something it, the absolute's always been there but if we're talking about enlightenment obviously we're talking about a living experience which necessitates a body <laughs> and, and yeah and I think this is so relevant to the times we live in it may not have been relevant in Buddha's age or you know whatever Ramana's age but I think that this is very relevant now because um, because of the you know the way the world is and the amount of sickness there is and the amount of uh, you know food issues and medical issues and all sorts of things and so it's not about denying that but embracing it and so I talk about that and also um, there was something else I was going to say and I forgot but <laughs> do, you, do you talk about higher consciousness or enlightenment being the kind of uh ultimate solution to practical world problems in terms of like infusion of that kind of divine quality into into the relative being the the nourishment that all the various expressions of life need in order to resolve all this terrible stuff that's going on yeah i talk about our work and our mission and our relationship to money and um you know a a radical engagement with life Mm -hmm. but only through the foundation of awakening to the truth of who we are, of yeah. recognizing the true nature of everything and the true nature of self is the absolute foundation. And then to allow that uh, to be fully embodied and fully expressed through our actions is the transformation of humanity. So uh, that's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Nice. I talked to a young fellow a few weeks ago, Jonathan Tallett Phillips, about... Um, yeah, interviewed him, and he, he had once been a kind of a political radical and street theater and all that stuff. And when he was in that phase, he and his friends really looked down on the spiritual types, thought they were impractical and they weren't going to accomplish anything. And the spiritual types were looking at the political guys as being superficial and, you know, just uh, 
showmen that w- that weren't really going to accomplish anything on a deep level. And now he says the culture that he's involved in seems to be uh, mutually appreciative, and that the the, polit- the political people have become spiritual and vice versa, mm-hmm. and that there's a kind of a merging of those two worlds. Yeah, I, I think there is. There's a merging of opposites, a merging mm-hmm. of polarities, and and there's a lot of. Um, Dangers. The danger isn't the right word, but there's, there can be a lot of subtle illusions that still get perpetuated in that merging. So I'm kind of opening those up and looking at them. You know, mm. where are we still deluding ourselves that we've actually awakened um, and putting this into practice, if you like, in our daily lives? The, you know, the subtleties of that. And oh, I know what I was going to say, which um, I'd like to bring into this was that I was I was reading the Gospel of Peace recently. Um, uh, the, the translation of the original Aramaic text, hmm. um, and uh, is that Jesus, a Gnostic uh, gospel? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And um, I can't remember who did the translation, but um, it was fascinating to me because Jesus spoke of um, the heavenly Father and the earthly Mother, and uh, obviously what we get through the Bible is the teachings of the Heavenly Father but he was very heavily emphasizing um, the earthly mother that unless we that the that the uh, purging of our sins or the cleansing of our sins comes through the cleansing of the body Mm. I mean literally Mm -hmm. and unless we what he was referring to as sin was the toxicity that we carry, the pollution that we carry, that manifests as illness, imbalance, disharmony, uh, self-harm through our very ordinary interaction with life of what we eat, how we eat, how we relate to the earthly body of the planet and that this is the sin that he was talking about and unless we can cleanse that then we are unable to fully embody the light of the Heavenly Father. And this really spoke to me because I'm a real purist, if you like, on a physical level. Mm -hmm. I found that it serves mm, the expression of light in my life, Um, and it's just been a a natural thing for me, is that, um, yeah, I just find that that relationship very important. It's something that's very often overlooked. It's not that we, we identify are, or, or give ourselves over to being identified with the density of matter and the protection of body at all costs or the, the comfort that we derive from that, but actually to enlighten ourselves by enlightening the body. So I, I want to explore that more in my book. Yeah, that's a good one. The body is the temple of the soul. Absolutely. It's the vehicle. It is not yeah. the soul. It is not the light, but it's it the, is the, it's the vehicle, vehicle for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the Indian tradition, speaks of vasanas, which are like impressions, and uh, which maybe in the Western terminology we could call them stresses, or you know, which are actually you know, they must have physiological definitions, some biochemical imbalance, some structural damage, or something, and the working out of vasanas, the healing of those physical structures, and and rebalancing of the biochemistry, would, yeah, in jumping back and forth between Indian and Western explanations, uh, facilitate uh, enlightenment or awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Are you optimistic for the world? Do you feel, do you have an intuitive sense that uh, a much brighter time is coming? 
I've always been an optimist in my life, even though I was very dark as a young person <laughs> through my difficult experiences. I've always been an optimist. Um, uh, if you like, I'm an Aquarian astrologically, so we carry the, the torch of optimism for humanity and a, and a future utopia. And yeah, I, I guess I still am, but I also have um, uh, let go of any attachment to that right. uh, because I found that my uh, dream of a brighter humanity actually prevented me from being fully engaged with life as it is mm -hmm. in the full horror of how it unfolds if it unfolds in, in horror or if it unfolds in, 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 in ecstasy it doesn't matter which one and actually that's allowed me to be more real and more present and so, yes, I'm an optimist in some way, but also that optimism allows and contains absolute uh, horror if that's, if that's mm. what's unfolding and is part of the picture. Um, so you didn't expect to wake up on December 22nd with angels and butterflies? And <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, no. <laughs> I, I must say not. No, no. I, 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 I had absolutely no expectation or even gave it much attention in truth. Um, I uh, don't believe in a sudden awakening right. in that way, uh, planetary or otherwise, mm -hmm. and nor did I expect a perfect place. In fact, I, I imagine it'll probably uh, appear to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, this, this new world, this, this new consciousness, this new humanity may take hundreds of years. It, I, I have no idea. Right. All I know is that if I'm, all I know is that I and each of us as individuals are being called to be awake to that which is unfolding however it unfolds and it's that uh, capacity to be fully awake in it that allows the bigger picture to unfold I don't know what that bigger picture is going to look like <laughs> well I tell you I mean if, if I only got my news from the television and the newspaper and, and so on I I probably would be pessimistic because they don't actually report on the kind of things we're talking about uh, but the fact that there is such a groundswell um, you know throughout the world of people who are tuning into the kinds of things we're talking about and, and awakening uh, in some cases quite unexpectedly really genuinely awakening I think is um, gives one hope for the future and it, it's um, either at least counterbalancing if not actually causing uh, f fundamental change in all the more surface structures that seem so dire Sure. You know, and if everything collapses, which it's likely to do in some ways, everything has to collapse because yeah. both our physical and our psychological structures are collapsing so that we can discover the truth of what is here. Mm -hmm. um, if you like, the, the, the uh, groundswell of uh, awakening <laughs> is, 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 is ready to rebuild very the world. I, you know, that's what I, I. That's where my optimism lies. Is that everything's going to come crashing down? Maybe it's going to be horrific. Maybe it'll be partly horrific. Um, but within that, there'll be enough people uh, awakened and are ready to put that awakening into action to rebuild, brick by brick, step by step, a new world based on awakened foundations. That's my deepest mm. dream and hope. A number of spiritual teachers have said just that, that it's a done deal. Things are going to come crashing down. And I am here and others like me, I'm speaking as one of these spiritual teachers, to kind of um, s 
smooth the transition as much as possible, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of lubricate it so, so that it's not yeah. as, as traumatic as it might otherwise be. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and y you can say that yourself. I mean, you're, you're making a great contribution. <laughs> you know, and whether this body is here to be part of that or not, it's like also recognizing that we're, uh, uh, we truly are one and uh, it's the consciousness that is doing the work rather than this physical body. So whether this physical body will be here when it all collapses to do what it needs to do and serve the bigger picture or not in some case, in some ways is irrelevant. And that's a difficult thing to say, or rather an easy thing to say and a much harder thing to practice because obviously when this physical body is threatened by uh, complete destruction and death, it's going to struggle for survival and clinging to life. Mm -hmm. But uh, on some deeper level, there's a trusting that uh, if this body's not here, the consciousness that created this body is here. Mm -hmm. And so anything that's awakened through this body is uh, serving a purpose whether the body's here or not. Beautiful. And you are that consciousness, which is in all bodies. We are that consciousness. Yeah. Which, so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a healthy exercise to play God's eye view from time to time and just realize that, you know, we, we're the sort of animating force, that which we essentially are, is the animating force within everything. Um, yeah. And whether this particular little expression here, you know, continues to exist or not, doesn't change much in the big picture of things. Yes, yeah, it's a selflessness. It's a true mm -hmm. selflessness, and I, 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 I feel that's my, that's my path, and, and yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, you're a delightful person to talk to. I could keep you on here all day, but I think I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been uh, really enjoyable having this conversation. Any any final words, or shall I just wrap it up? Well, I could also talk with you for a long time. It's been really interesting conversation, and we've kind of meandered here and meandered there, and I, I don't know where we've been, but it's been very interesting. So thank you very much as well. Oh, thank you. So um, to those who have been listening or watching, um, this has been an interview with Amodama Jivan. I will be linking to her website, which is amodamajivan.com, from batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. If you can't remember Batgap or Buddha at the Gas Pump, remember the other, and you'll get, you'll get the same place either way. Um, and I will also be putting up a little bio of Amoda there and a link well, I said a link to her website, also links to her books, which you can get on Amazon. And um, there's contact info for Amoda on her site if you'd like to get in touch with her. There's also uh, you know, various things on batgap.com that you can participate in, a, a chat group that develops around each interview. There's already been uh, about 200 posts on the interview that I posted about four or five days ago, so it gets quite lively sometimes. Um, and some of those conversations you know, really get quite interesting and, and uh, thoughtful. So feel free to join in on that. Um, there's also a Yahoo group that is lesser known uh, called Buddha at the Gas Pump, which has its little devoted uh, following. Um, there's a, a tab on the website f uh, which you can click on to sign up to be notified by email of each new interview as it's posted. There's a donate button, which I very much appreciate people clicking if they have the capacity and the inclination. And there's a link to an audio podcast in case you'd rather just listen on an iPod to this sort of thing rather than having to sit in front of your computer and watch it. 
So you'll see that link with each interview. So um, thanks again, Amoda, and uh, thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rick, and thank you for the service that you're doing and putting all these shows out. Oh, it's great, great fun for me, as I'm sure you realize, because you're doing a similar thing in your own way, you know, yeah. each, serving, each serving our role. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you. Namaste. <laughs>